nearing its completion as we're in the last Passion Week of Christ. And uh, as we read today, I, I recognize here's what we have before us. We have an opportunity uh, to look into God's Word. This Word that is described by the writers of Scripture as sweeter than honey, more desirable than gold. God has preserved his word, dear friends, this morning so that we can hear the words of Jesus and be transformed by them. May we be as a church, may we be eager to receive the word of God by faith. And, and yeah, yeah, I just want to say, don't let, don't let the distraction of the familiarity with the preacher uh, to dilute your faith in the power of God's word to reach into your heart today and minister grace to you. So as we, as we approach the word this morning, let us approach it with faith. As I mentioned, we're three days into the Passion Week in Jerusalem. Jesus has come. He had his, his glorious Sunday with, with people laying down palm branches and, and welcoming him with Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and all of that. This is three days after that, so he's into the week. What's been happening through the week is that different groups have come and sought to deny his authority, had sought to bring down his message. And, and all kinds of groups, we've been seeing this over the past weeks, have come to attack him. The Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sanhedrin, the loyalists, the scribes, the chief priests, they've all come and waged their attack. They've, they've asked questions related to his ministry, related to his politic, related to theology. And his answers consistently demonstrate that Jesus is not only unmatched in his wisdom, his words have often left his hearers silent, speechless, as they hear the wisdom of God flowing forth from Jesus' lips. And I, I mentioned that to again build faith in our hearts for what we're about to hear today. Because if those people were left speechless, it, it should be the same, that they have the same effect on our hearts. That as we, as we ponder and think about the wisdom of God expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, that we will be left speechless at seeing him and savoring him today. In our text explicitly today, it's another group that's taking a shot at Jesus. They're trying to, again, they're trying to deny his ministry, trying to, trying to put him in his place. In fact, they'd, they'd like him to go away. They'd like him to be murdered. And, and the Sadducees take their shot at Jesus. You might ask this question of Luke. Luke, you're writing a gospel. Why are you including all of these shots at Jesus? Well, remember who Luke is writing to. He's writing to an audience predominantly of Gentiles. These Gentiles aren't overly familiar with Jesus, and they've heard things, however, about Jesus. And so Luke is methodically debunking all of their arguments that they have against Jesus. The argument today that the Sadducees bring is they don't believe in the resurrection. And in fact, in that culture... Many Gentiles didn't believe in the resurrection either. They thought that once you die, you just cease to exist. And so Luke, with the skill of a writer and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is seeking to communicate, not just to those Gentile hearers, but to us too, 
today about the glories of the resurrection. So we're going to read uh, Luke 20. Again, I'm starting at verse 27 through verse 40. This is the word of the Lord. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. Dear Father, this morning as we look into your word, we pray for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to make this text come alive in our hearts. You have preserved it for a specific reason that on this Sunday we would hear and see Jesus. So as our brother Jason just prayed a few moments ago, Holy Spirit, would you shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ and exalt him in our hearts that we might see him and be changed by him. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the Sadducees aren't people that we hear a whole lot about, and so I want to tell you just a little bit about who they are. The Sadducees were a group that was distinct from the Pharisees. Uh, this group emerged in the second century BC, uh, and a few things in particular about them are worthy of noting. They tended to be the upper echelon of the priesthood. We see that in Acts 5. Um, they were wealthy. They were rationalistic. They sought to preserve the status quo. As verse 27 declares, they also denied the reality of the resurrection from the dead. And like my Sunday school teacher once taught me, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they were sad, you see. I still remember it after all these years. I know it's a bad joke, but I do remember it. Like, I always remember, oh yeah, the Sadducees, they were sad, you see. So, good job. Mr. Earl, who taught me in sixth grade that one, and it's still coming forward. So they thought, once you die, like many of the Gentiles, actually, of the day, they thought, once you die, you cease to exist. They also denied the presence of angels. So those two things, 
the resurrection and angels Jesus speaks to in his short account with them. What's also true about the Sadducees, this is very interesting, is that they looked only to the Torah as their place of faith. In other words, they believed only in the first five books, the Pentateuch, the books written by Moses. They looked to them solely for their theology. They didn't listen to the rest of the Old Testament. So it was just the Pentateuch that they looked to and they built their theological principles based on that alone. The Torah reigned supreme. So after many, again, after many other groups had tried to take Jesus down, here comes this group, the Sadducees, and they concoct their story to try to take him down once again. It's interesting how they did it too because they create this fictitious story about a woman who had seven husbands. So I'm not going to read the account again, but let me once again summarize for you. A man who has six other brothers, he marries a lady and he dies uh, childless. His brother uh, marries the lady, but, but they don't produce a child and then he dies. And so the five brothers after him and and the lady dies eventually as well. So the question that the Sadducees pose to Jesus is in the in the resurrection, who is this lady's husband? Because apparently she has a house full of husbands to choose from. So who is going to be this lady's husband? Their story, it's very interesting, their story draws from Old Testament law. For back in Deuteronomy 25, a law was designed to perpetuate the name and legacy of a man who died childless. You can read about it yourself. It held that if a married man died, died childless, excuse me, his brother was to take the deceased man's wife as his own and raise up for him, his honor, a son who would then carry on the family name, the, the name of the deceased man. This was a law in Israel. So being students of the law of Moses, as the Sadducees were, uh, they devised this story uh, with seven men who were had the same wife, and, and they, they tried to trap Jesus. Now, it's clear to say they weren't interested in Jesus' answer. All they were predominantly interested was in making the thought of the resurrection look foolish and ridiculous, and they concocted this story to, to get that end result. Now, what we see in Jesus' answer, I, I believe we see two basic answers to their question. First answer to his question, their question. Uh, number one, life in the coming age will be different from life in the current age. Let's read verses 34 to 36. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So the question that the Sadducees leveled at Jesus, it made some assumptions. And one of the assumptions was that life in the age to come was going to be the same as the life as we now know it. Yet marriage, we learn from how Jesus responds, is not a permanent arrangement in God's eternal purposes. It's only for this age now. 
And, and look again with me, verse 36. Look at the reason Jesus gives for why it ends. He says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore. He states that resurrected believers are equal in status to angels and are immortal. They cannot die. And in the resurrection of God's children, the full number of God's family, the elect, have been brought together in God's family and given immortality. And not one of God's children will be lost to death. There'll be no more death. Death has been conquered by Christ and all that God intends to be a part of his family in that resurrected, glorified state, everyone that God intended to be in his family will actually be there. So there's no longer a need for procreation, which is one of the fruits of marriage, as God's family will now be full. In heaven, redemption will be fully realized. And, and I don't believe that Jesus is suggesting here that the only reason marriage exists is solely for procreation. However, since in heaven there is no more death, there is no more marriage as we know it here on earth. Now, in my own limited human understanding, this, this verse, as you've read it, you probably respond instinctively. If you're a married individual here today, uh, you probably respond instinctively like I respond instinctively to this passage. My instinct is to frown and be disappointed because I want to be with Jules. You know, I, this is a great lady. And so I'd love to be with her. Uh, and so there's this instinctive, oh, Lord, that, that doesn't feel quite right. What, what is our relationship going to be with our spouses? Julie and I have, have talked about this. And we wonder if we're, like, we're going to walk by each other and be like, hey. <laughs> I mean, we, we don't really know exactly what this will be like to our finite understanding. It would seem so strange to just have a different relationship than we enjoy here. But we know from the Apostle Paul that earthly marriage was intended as a human expression of ultimately our union with Christ for all eternity. In other words, the union of one man and one woman in marriage is an earthly expression of the eternal reality of Christ being one with his church. So there will be one wedding in heaven. It will be Christ and his bride together in perfect, blissful harmony for all time. See, even, you know, Paul uses the metaphor of Christ, husbands loving their wives as what? As Christ loves his church, as he sacrifices for his church in this glorious union of the two. So what comfort can we have from this passage, particularly for those of us who are married and enjoy our relationship with our spouses on this earth. Well, what comforts me is this. The joy of being united to Christ in the perfection of unhindered, sin-free fellowship with Jesus will be so eternally satisfying that we will find nothing lacking in heaven. 
Remember, we're going to be with God himself. And and what does the psalmist tell us about being in God's presence? He says this, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. Listen, in your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So stick with me here. If if he says fullness of joy, that couldn't mean less joy than we experienced on the earth, right? And so it must mean more joy than we have even now. So joy that has no ending point, no asterisk, no bad aftertaste because of sin. Fullness of joy means just that. It's full. It can't get any more full than that. Paul says it this way. In Ephesians 2, he says that in the coming ages, God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So so what is Paul saying here? He's saying we'll experience grace and goodness so rich. Hear this, dear friends. So rich and full and vibrant that it is unable to be measured by any standard. It can't be measured. It's so wonderful. This is what awaits us in heaven. So, to whatever degree the pleasure that the very best marriage on earth can bring, that will not be worthy to be compared with the joy and pleasure of our union with Jesus Christ, our head. It will be perfect. These earthly pleasures, and in this case, the pleasure of marriage, they are simply pointers toward a greater reality. The greater reality of union and communion with our head, Jesus Christ. We are not going to be sitting in heaven saying, oh, this is great, but this is great, but no, we're not going to say that. We're going to have the fullness of joy. It's going to be really great. And our mind can't even comprehend it. It's like it just it just boggles our mind. We can't get there. Paul again says it this way. He says, "What no eye has seen, nor ear heard." So we don't even have an idea. We can't even talk about it. We can't even think about it. No ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. How glorious a picture of what's to come! It's going to be awesome. Nobody's going to be looking back saying, oh, take me back. No, it's going to be the fullness of joy in the resurrection. And though you and I, though we might have trouble imagining it, it will be unimaginably good. That's how good it'll be. I can't wait to get there. And while I enjoy what God has provided on this earth and and enjoy it to the fullest for his glory... In that place, in that resurrection, as we experience God, whether we were married on this earth or single, our joy in the resurrected state will be full. In your presence is the fullness of joy. Do you see the resurrection really matters? And what happens in the afterlife, it really matters. Again, these, these Gentiles to whom Luke writes, they're unconvinced. They don't know. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's a new reality 
that's coming. It will be awesome. Life in the coming age will be different. Life in the coming age will be galaxies better than what we experience, even in the joys and the highs of life in this world. Second thing that Jesus says, he is the God of the living. So after having nullified their question due to the fact that there's no marriage in heaven, Jesus goes on to further appeal to the Sadducees. I I really appreciate this about Christ. He could have decimated them. He could have shredded them. But what does he do in love? I mean, Jesus is always reaching toward people, even when they're coming to attack him. He 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 makes his argument from the Torah. He he you know appeals to them from the Torah when he responds. Look at verse thirty-seven. He says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. So let me try and like, what, what, is, what is he saying here? Jesus is going back to the account in Exodus 4 and 5, excuse me, 3 and 4, to prove that God is the God of the living. So he, he cites scripture where God himself is speaking through the angel at the burning bush. He declared himself to be the God of the living, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is saying, here's what he's saying. He says, those guys, those patriarchs, they are still alive. See, God made covenant promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And God is a fulfiller of his promises. And what good, what good are promises made to a dead man? Uh, uh, Promises made to a dead man have no account. He's saying, I mean, look at what's happening. Jesus, the very fulfillment of God's covenantal promise is standing before them. And he is appealing to their understanding of the Torah and saying, hey, remember back in Exodus when God promised to those three patriarchs about the fulfillment of his promise? I am the fulfillment of that promise. I'm standing right before you. I am the God of the living, not the dead. I'm alive. I am here. God is the one who who brings these things forward. And so the patriarchs aren't dead as well as God's promise isn't dead and he is alive. So he stands before them as testimony to their, their fundamental unbelief in the resurrection and he calls them to believe. Just what's, what's interesting about this story is just a few days prior, just a few days prior to Jesus coming and, and walking into Jerusalem on that triumphal Sunday, just a few days prior to that, Jesus was at the grave of Lazarus. You may recall, as Mary and Martha, they wept over the loss of their brother Lazarus. He was dead. And Jesus declares something to them. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then Jesus proceeded to to live that out by calling forth Lazarus from the grave. He, he awoke and he was, he was given the breath of life again and he came out of that grave, took the grave clothes off. Jesus authenticated his power over death 
by calling him forward. And he said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. See, what's happening here is Jesus is exalting himself by claiming that he is the God of the living. He is the resurrecting God. He has the power to do what no human can do. He is the God of the alive. We exalt Jesus Christ this morning in his exalted state. He is the conquering Savior. He is the reigning King. He is the resurrection and the life. I want to ask the newly minted Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith to help me here. So uh, this is so well written. The exaltation of Christ in his resurrection, ascension, and reign reveals the full glory of his mediatorial work. Raised by the power of God, Christ triumphed over sin, death, and Satan, and as the first fruits of the new creation, gives eternal life to all who are united to him by faith. Having ascended to the Father's right hand, Christ pours out the Spirit on his people and intercedes on their behalf as a great high priest, constantly advocating their cause and granting them access into God's presence. As the exalted Lord, what does Christ do? Christ reigns with all authority as universal king and head of his church, governing the affairs of men and nations. What comfort for us today in our context, right? He governs the affairs of men and nations and empowering his people to be victorious over sin and Satan. The consummation of Christ's saving work will occur when he returns to judge the world in righteousness, deliver the kingdom to his father and receive eternal worship as king of kings and lord of lords. And the church says, amen. May it be, may it come quickly, Lord, come. You see, what what hope the resurrection provides. All of that statement flows from the facts of the resurrection, that Jesus is the God, not of the dead, but of the alive. What unshakable hope we can have in uncertain days because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does this mean for us? It means that we have no enemy that will be unthwarted by Christ. It means that we will encounter no difficulty in this age where Christ will leave us to fend for ourselves. He has resurrection power to defeat every enemy, including the enemies within our own souls. See, I know that in a room like this, of this size, there are folks here this morning who have active enemies of the soul, sins that cling sometimes so closely. We just want to be rid of them so badly, but they, they cling so closely. And the resurrection power of Jesus Christ says something this morning to those things that, sins, that cling so closely. It says this, hey, if I could raise you like Lazarus from the dead, do you think that my power is too weak to help you to conquer those sins in your life? Praise the Lord, it's not too weak. Praise the Lord, there is power, resurrection power for God's people because 
His power lives in us through the Holy Spirit. God is good. God gives us hope through the resurrection. We can carry on, dear church. We can glorify God in greater measure in the days to come because He has given resurrection power to us through the mercy of Jesus Christ. There's another implication of the resurrection to consider here, and I want to just spend a moment thinking about it with you. As right as it is for us to rejoice in the coming resurrection, and we're going to do that, by the way, in our closing song in just a few minutes, um, I want us as God's people just to rejoice in the resurrection that's coming, the resurrection that took place, which makes that resurrection a reality. But there is... I believe there's a right place for us to be sobered by the coming resurrection because in verse 35, Jesus says that there are those who will be, quote, worthy of the resurrection. And what does that mean by converse? It means that there will be those who will be judged to be unworthy of that particular resurrection. In other words, others will be excluded from the blessing of heaven by their rejection of Christ. Scripture instructs us that all people will be resurrected at the end of this age, the just and the unjust, as their souls will be reunited with their bodies. The just to the resurrection of life, the unjust to the resurrection of Judgment. Let me quote here Daniel 12, 2, when he says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, it's right that we as the gathered church, the gathered people of God, rejoice in the resurrection. Let our theology of the resurrection motivate us and stir us deep within our gut to, while we have time, to use the breath that we have to declare the grace of the gospel to other people. See, there are people all around us, our neighbors and friends and people that you're aware of, that will spend, apart from them turning and repenting to the mercy of Christ, they will spend an eternity in hell. Last week I shared with you how I, I did the funeral uh, last Friday of, of Julie's aunt, 56 years old, life cut off prematurely. I was gripped. That lady was in my house numerous times for family gatherings. Did I do all that I could do I know salvation is up to God. He is the one who is sovereign over it. But my thoughts at that funeral was, did I do all that I could do? Did I expend my last breath with her? Dear friends, here's what I want to say. Let us not grow weary in praying for the salvation of others. Let us not grow weary in proclaiming the hope of Jesus Christ to others. We may have been doing it for years now, and there's been no turn in the folks that we're proclaiming. Let us not 
grow weary in doing it because there is a coming resurrection. And those who are apart from Christ will be resurrected to eternal shame and punishment. Dear friends, this isn't a guilt thing. This is a let's be motivated by this coming resurrection. May more people be able to join us in the resurrection unto life with Jesus Christ because God enabled us to be faithful in this place. I was reading Spurgeon this week and Spurgeon said something that just stuck with me. He said, if Jesus is precious to you, you'll not be able to keep the good news to yourself. If Jesus is precious to me, I'll not be able to keep the good news to myself. What do we have? We have Easter coming up. We have Good Friday coming up. We have opportunities by giving flowers um, just to make an expression of care for other people. We have the opportunity to invite people to come hear the gospel, either online or, or in person. We, we have opportunities all around us to connect with people. The question is, do we consider Christ so precious that we're going to take the opportunity and, and not just think a thought about, oh, that would be a nice thing to do, but actually do it. Dear friends, may the resurrection motivate us to be faithful to the call of preaching the gospel to every tribe and tongue, every nation, including the very people that live on our street. So let me draw us to a close here. Church, it is, it is right for us to rejoice, and I want to call the worship team out onto the stage to join me. It is right for us to rejoice um, and to declare the great graces of this wonderful reality that awaits us in heaven. It's going to be different from what we experience here on earth, and it's going to be glorious. Our joy will be full. Christ's resurrection has afforded for us this new reality. Jesus has purchased life and we have opportunity to rejoice that there's power over every sin in our lives, that, that there's nothing that can keep us down with God's resurrecting power. And so until we come to that day, may God enable us to be faithful in this day that we might look forward to our heavenly city that celestial city that we long for, Zion city that we come to, where Jesus will be in his glory. We will be with him forever. And until that day, may we be faithful in this day to praise him. And one of the ways that we praise him is by opening our mouths and by sharing him. Would you stand with me now? Lord, this morning we, we so want to be faithful to you. Thank you so much for giving us the power of the Holy Spirit within us that we might be able to be faithful with you, to you, even today and, and this week, that we would proclaim the hope of this risen and resurrected Lord. 
Father, I want to say too, thank you for the compassion that, that Jesus even shows in this text. Where even though these, these Sadducees are, are trying to entrap him and make him look foolish, even then Jesus still appeals to them. He appeals to them from the very place where they believed. And he tries to draw them to himself, declaring that he is the God of the living. Lord, and as we have breath, May we declare that you are the God of the living to ourselves and rejoice in the church about that and then to our neighbors and friends who don't know you. God, would we be faithful until we come to that day that we might declare this great hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now, Lord, we turn and we sing this happy song. We rejoice in the good news that we enjoy. And we pray, oh Lord, draw people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There may be people that are even coming to mind right now. Oh Lord, save them, Jesus. Help them to believe in you. Cause their heart to repent in faith and trust. Make them to be born again, Lord, we pray. That we might be together in that heavenly city praising the name of our Lord.